This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching to the Gospel of Matthew, and today we're at the end of chapter 19. Believers make trade-offs when they accept Christ. It's a worthwhile trade, and we are by far the beneficiaries in the exchange. But when times are tough and sadness or trials engulf us, it can be hard to remember what God has promised for his children. In this portion of scripture, Jesus reminds us of the power of God to redeem spiritually dead people and his power to recompense or compensate believers. We have rewards, not just in heaven, but here on earth as well. And that should be both a comfort and a reason for rejoicing, no matter what our circumstances. My name is Brian Schmidt, and I'll have more information for you at the end of this program. But for now, let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. Follow along with me, verses 23 through 30 of chapter 19. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, Then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, With people this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So here it is, church. Jesus gives us a perfect example of a miracle. Something that is impossible in the human realm, but possible in the divine sphere only. Jesus says, with people, this is impossible, but not for God. With God, all things are possible. So what we have here in this scene is a demonstration of God's miraculous power to save on display right here. First, I want you to see verses 23 through 26, God's power to redeem, verses 23 through 26. Now, remember, this is with the encounter with the rich young ruler In the background here, if you weren't here last week, just read the passage before this, the scene before this. There was a rich young ruler who came to Christ interested in Jesus, interested in eternal life. And he asked, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, knowing the heart of that man, said, well, you must keep the commandments, which he did outwardly. And he thought, great, then I qualify for eternal life. And Jesus said, well, if you want to really enter the kingdom or if you want to be complete or uh, perfect, you lack one thing. Go and sell all your possessions and then give them to the poor and then follow me. You have a treasure in heaven. Now, Jesus is not giving a prescription for the rest of us. He knows the heart of that man and he knew that that man loved his wealth way too much. So the cost was too great to follow Christ. And therefore, Jesus now explains to the disciples that love of possessions prevents people from entering the kingdom of heaven because those who place their trust in their riches will hardly recognize their need of a savior because whatever need they have, they can just purchase. Furthermore, people tend to associate wealth with divine favor. That's the case today. That was the case in the Jewish culture of the first century. Therefore, associating with Christ has a 
material cost for that man specifically and a social cost for the rest of us. And that cost is extremely high. Many people don't want to pay that cost. And they say, well, if that's the case, then I will stick with my own comfort, my own philosophies. Here, you can keep your Jesus. But that is the reason, church, why Paul tells Timothy, the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. First Timothy 6, verse 10. That's that rich young ruler that Paul is describing. The love of possession, the love of money is a root of all evil. Now, money is not the root of all evil. We need to understand this. The love of money is. Financial resources allow us to send missionaries around the world. They allow us to help others in need, fund ministries to proclaim the gospel. It's not a problem to own money. The problem is when money owns you. And Jesus illustrates this with an idiomatic expression, the camel going through the eye of a needle. Now, I'm sure you've heard many explanations about what this means. And I want to tell you that contrary to what many have explained, there was no gate called needle anywhere around that time. Jesus is simply using a figure of speech, a literary device to communicate impossibility. You cannot fit a camel through the eye of a needle. It's an idiomatic expression. And his point is very simple. Salvation of anyone, rich or poor, is an exclusive act of God. It's a miraculous act of God, therefore impossible by human efforts. Salvation belongs to the Lord, the psalmist affirms in Psalms 3, verse 8. Salvation is from the Lord, Jonah cried out from the belly of the big fish, Jonah 2, verse 9. Paul reminds us, by grace are we saved, and that's not of ourselves, it's the gift of God, Ephesians 2, verse 8. Salvation, therefore, is impossible for people to accomplish. You cannot earn your salvation. You cannot produce your entrance into the kingdom of heaven. It is easier for a camel to walk through the eye of a needle than for anybody, specifically rich people, to enter the kingdom of heaven. But let me give you some names here of rich people who made it to the kingdom of heaven by a divine work of, of a miracle here, really. For example, Isaac, Jacob, Solomon, Zacchaeus. Joseph of Arimathea, Salome, and many others in the New Testament. They were willing to forsake their wealth to receive the greater treasure, which is salvation by grace through faith. And they responded in faith. So even though salvation is impossible by human hands, salvation is possible by divine intervention, miraculous divine intervention. He does it all the time. The Bible says when somebody becomes a believer, it's a spiritually dead person coming to life. That is a miracle of God. Now, the statements of verse 23 and 24 here shocked the disciples. You may have noticed that they were astonished. And the reason why they were so surprised is, again, going back to that notion that only rich people qualify to enter the kingdom of heaven because they thought the elites were better positioned to inherit salvation or to obtain salvation because they already possessed material wealth. So they thought, well, if if they're already blessed of God in this level, it's just a small step to this spiritual level, when Jesus said to them, no, it's impossible. But again, you may say, pastor, that doesn't describe me because I am not rich. In fact, I don't have much money. In fact, this year has been so challenging for me. I lost money. I lost my job. Friend, that may be true of you, but let me offer you two thoughts. First of all, the affluent are not the only ones who worship at the altar of riches. Did you know that? You don't have to be rich to worship money. The desire for money may be an idol in your heart so much that it keeps you from receiving salvation because you will not let go of that idol. And that's the problem. But second, I want to also let you know, in case you didn't know, if you are an American and you live in this society, you belong to the richest people in the world. Did you know that? 
You are part of the richest people in the world measured against other countries. Now, you may not be wealthy like Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, but you are rich compared to the rest of the world. Just survey the gross domestic product of other countries and you will agree. Now, for this particular reason, you should not allow American conveniences to take the throne in your heart. It is impossible by human efforts for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And if we are rich compared to the rest of the world, the fact that we are in the kingdom of heaven is only an evidence of the miraculous power of God to redeem. Because we're only there by His grace. None of us are in the kingdom by our own efforts. And Paul testifies of that when he says, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. See, that's the perspective of the believer. Sometimes God gives you much. Sometimes God may withhold from you for whatever reason. But Paul continues, In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, he can only have that perspective because he's a member of the kingdom of heaven. Only people who are born again, who have received the miraculous saving power of God, can identify with these words. See, if Christ lives in you, you already have everything you need. Because not only are you a member of the kingdom of heaven, but God will provide for you everything you need. Your faith, in fact, is more precious than gold, according to 1 Peter 1 verse 7. Your inheritance is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, 1 Peter 1 4. So whether you are rich or poor, if you are in the kingdom of heaven, God placed you there by his miraculous power to redeem Now, you don't have to liquidate all your assets like this rich young ruler from the previous scene. But if your wealth occupies the place in your heart that belongs to Jesus alone, a camel will go through the eye of a needle before you make it to the kingdom of heaven. So I want you to see not only God's power to redeem, but also God's power to reward or to recompense, verses 27 to 30. We'll start with the future because that's how Jesus starts. Verses 27 through 28, your future rewards. Now, Peter, again, serving as a spokesman of the group, compared the disciples' faithfulness to the response from the rich young ruler who declined the offer of salvation. You know, so perhaps Peter wants to comfort Jesus as if to say, Jesus, don't mind him. That's okay. He walked away from salvation, but hey, don't be sad. We followed you. Peter saying, no, we have left everything to follow you, so don't mind him. You still have us. That's so like Peter to say something like this. Now, certainly, the apostle Peter here has in mind the time when Jesus called him and his brother. Matthew describes that scene in Matthew 4, verses 18 through 19. Now, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting an ant into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets And followed him. So probably Peter is referring to this day when he says, We followed you immediately. We didn't even consider. We left our livelihoods behind to follow you. Okay, so far so good. But then he said, Well, what's our deal? When do we, when do we cash in? Now, remember, Peter and Andrew, they were not rich or affluent, but they left everything. And then Peter probably, when he heard Jesus say, The expression, a treasure in heaven. That's what, oh, wait a minute, there's a treasure for us in heaven. I want to hear all about that. Now, obviously, there's nothing wrong with wanting to know the future 
for us as believers in Christ. There's an entire book that talks about this in the book of Revelation, at least chapters four on until the end of the book. And there are several other portions of Scripture that deal with that. It's telling us what we are to expect when we get to heaven, our our future rewards. There's nothing wrong with that. But clearly here what happens is that the disciples still operated by a system of carnality. Because you remember in chapter 18, verse 1, they were arguing with each other to say, I am the greatest in the kingdom. No, I am the great. I am the great. And they wanted to know their rank in the kingdom. They wanted to secure their rank in the kingdom. And Peter probably took this opportunity to say, wait, wait a minute then. We left everything. We hear you that there's no reason to demand greatness in the kingdom. But what is there for us when we get there? And Jesus, amazingly, did not rebuke them. He gave him a a picture of hope. And we know that because he mentions the regeneration in verse 28. Now, that word regeneration means literally to be born again. What he's talking about here in this particular case is the resurrection of believers. Because he points to the time when Jesus will reign on the earth. So he is referring to the future resurrection of believers. So Jesus is saying here, whatever you lose for my sake is only going to be a temporary loss. Because there is a manifold gain awaiting for the believer when you get to heaven. See, church, that is why it's so important for us to reject any theology that talks about your better you now, your best life now. Friend, if your best life is now, then who wants heaven? Your best life is when you get to heaven. So whatever theology that preaches the fact that, man, things are only going to get better from now on, first of all, that may not be true. Because the same gospel you preach here in America must be the same gospel you preach in communist North Korea, for example. When a sinner comes to faith in Christ in places like this, they are signing their death certificate. So there is a manifold gain waiting for you. Even though you lost many things, you may have lost relationships, you may have lost friendships, you may have lost your livelihood because of your faith in Christ. But Paul expresses this hope of a manifold gain when he says this, I count all things to be lost. In view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish, that I may gain Christ. That's Philippians 3 verse 8. He says, I count all things to be lost compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ now and knowing him personally when you get to heaven, greeting him personally when you get there. He has a a physical body that is in heaven. He is there now. He ascended into heaven, even though spiritually he lives in the lives and the hearts of every believer. And amazingly here, Jesus reveals something about that future period, that the resurrected disciples will rule with him on the earth. So he says, you will live again. You will be resurrected. Not only that, you will reign with me on the earth. He's talking about the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign. Now, years after this promise... Jesus showed another disciple a scene about how that's going to happen. And I want to take you there so that you will be comforted in the harmony of Scripture. Listen to Revelation 20, verse 4. Again, we're talking about the future rewards of the believer. John writes, he's having a vision of the future. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So he's talking about resurrected believers who will sit on thrones in order to govern with Christ, render judgment with God's law. But Paul adds an interesting detail here in case you wonder, well, like Peter, what's in it for me? He's talking about they here. Who who are they? 
Well, here's what God has in mind for you, my fellow believer in Christ. Paul says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? So, friend, you and I will be judging the world. If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Talking about the fact that the context here is that believers were taking other believers to court. And Paul says, that's a no-no. And he says, do you not know that we will judge angels? 1 Corinthians 6, 2 verse 3. Now, did you know that, church? As a believer in Christ, you are going to co-rule with Christ. You're going to be given jurisdiction over perhaps regions so that you will judge, you will govern with Christ. But not only that, you're going to be doing that in the spiritual realm. You will judge angels. But you say, well, I didn't know angels needed to be judged. Well, these are fallen angels, demons. Good angels or or, or non-fallen angels don't need to be judged. What a fascinating promise here. Every believer will rule with Jesus, governing, sentencing, Judging fallen angels, worshiping, fellowshipping in a glorified existence, which means no one will ever get tired, bored, or frustrated. And there will be no injustice because uh, we're going to rule with the perfect monarch in the world. So the idea, friends, that you will exist in the afterlife in a nebulous place where disembodied people float around from cloud to cloud, plucking on a harp, hearing the music from the party down there in hell, couldn't be more inaccurate. That's what the world wants you to believe. They want you to believe that heaven is boring. No, you're going to have a body, a glorified body, because you're going to be resurrected, regenerated, and you're going to be busy. Your future is bright, my friend, and your future is exciting, my fellow believer. You better start cashing in on that joy right now. You see, if you're discouraged with what you see now, if you're discouraged with your life, how your life is going now, just think about the future. Think that this is only temporary. You're going to be busy. You're going to exist in a glorified body. No more pain. No more sorrow. No more limitations of aging. And you're going to co-rule with Christ. Now, He doesn't need your help to rule the world. He's going to recruit you because of His grace. And again, your inclusion in this whole system, in this whole process is only by the miraculous power of God who can accomplish the impossible. Only He can do that. And that impossibility is the redemption and the recompense of undeserving sinners like you. We don't deserve any of that. It's only by His grace, by His miraculous power. So we took inventory of our future rewards with Christ. Let's take inventory of your present rewards. Verses 29 to 30 here. Now, according to Mark, Jesus promised that His followers will receive a hundred times as much In the present age. See, Mark is describing the same scene and he says, so we combine the two with the harmonized account and we understand that Jesus says here, Mark 10 verse 30, that you will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms along with persecutions. (laughs) You will receive a hundred times as much, which means many times as much. It's a figure of speech. Like you and I say, oh man, I've been waiting for a million years for this to happen. Luke's version includes the word in this time. So we know he's talking about the present. So what we understand then, church, from Scripture is that if you are a believer in Christ, you have been placed into the kingdom of heaven by his miraculous power to redeem. You have been promised future rewards. And not only that, in the present time, you will receive many times as much houses, brothers, sisters, and mothers, and fathers, and children, and farms. Wait a minute, pastor, you say. I thought we weren't into this whole wealth and wealth thing. And you are correct. Because there's a specific way to understand these promises here. We can't leave the context 
Otherwise, you will get on a, on a tangent here and you'll create your own theology. These promises must be understood in the context of the local church. And let me tell you why. You cannot have more than one biological mother or father, right? You cannot have more than one biological mother and father. So when Jesus says you're going to receive many more fathers or mothers, he's not talking about blood-related fathers and mothers. Therefore, the rest of these items follow suit. The context of the local church. Why? Because the church is within months of inauguration at this time here when he is promising these things. He's on the way to the cross, and the day of Pentecost will follow that after 40 days. Now, Jesus is not advocating for abandonment of family relationships. We already know that. We have determined that. He's not advocating for abandonment of spousal responsibilities. We've already determined that as well. But he does promise here a spiritual family to every believer, especially those who endure disenfranchisement because of the gospel. Now, I haven't been abandoned by my parents when I came to faith in Christ. I've lost many friends when that happens. I was 15 years old. I know people who have endured that type of situation. And they specifically cling to this promise here because Jesus says those who have been abandoned by their families will have in this life many times more. And here's how that happens, church. Because when a sinner comes to faith in Christ and joins a local church, he or she dies to the world, but will enjoy the full benefits of belonging to the family of God. You have been adopted into the family of God, and therefore you have many, many brothers and sisters in Christ because we are the household of faith. Galatians 6 verse 10. That is because, according to John 1, verse 12, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And furthermore, he says in Romans, Paul says in Romans 8, verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. So if you are in Christ, friend, you belong to the kingdom of heaven. And as a member of this universal family, you have many spiritual mothers. You have many spiritual fathers seasoned believers who can serve as mentors, and you have many brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul addresses Timothy, for example, as my true child in the faith, 1 Timothy 1 verse 2. But also, not only you have many spiritual fathers and mothers, you have brothers and sisters united not by natural DNA, but by the blood of Jesus. We are, according to the author of Hebrews chapter 3 verse 1, the brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling. So we are brothers and sisters in Christ, and furthermore, as that spiritual family extends hospitality to you, you have many houses where you can lodge when necessary. Some of you have experienced the benevolence and generosity of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Therefore, experiencing the fulfillment of this promise here, you have many houses. And there's also the reference to farms, many farms, probably an indication of labor, that your family will provide labor for you as well, your, your new family in Christ. And that is the promise in the future, in the present, rather. Now, if you need a case in point, let me take you to the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 44 through 47, to understand as many houses, many farms, many brothers and sisters, hundredfold fathers and mothers. Luke describes the life of the early church, by the way, which we will do well to imitate. He says, all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, 
praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And you say, Pastor, that is un-American. I think that's socialism. Friend, let me explain to you that there's no government theft here. The government is not commandeering the means of production in this particular case. This was all volunteer. Nobody had to do anything. They wanted to. By their own free will, they were liquidating possessions in order to provide for each other. So you see, church, how God promises to take care of your every need. There is rewards in the future for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, and there are rewards in the present because you will experience that type of kindness and generosity and benevolence from one another. Jesus promises also eternal life. At the moment you became a believer in Christ, eternal life has been granted to you because John says in 1 John 5 verse 12, whoever has the Son has life, present tense, not future. You have eternal life now. Now, at the moment you die... Your body is going to go to the grave and you are immediately ushered into the presence of God because the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord for believers in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 8. So eternal life that you already had at the moment you became a believer graduates to existence in a glorified state. The resurrected part of eternal life begins. So my friend, if you're a believer in Christ, you have all of these promises to you. What's there to not rejoice about? There are plenty of rewards in the future and in the present. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. Plus, we're always looking for people just like you to help us spread the gospel around the world. This broadcast is provided to you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth With Grace.